You know, I think there's been how many articles and books and conferences about how do we get HR seat at the table? It's like, you remember that you control the largest line item on your team's budget, which is your payroll. But I think oftentimes HR leaders, and tell me if this is true in your experience, are kind of afraid to go into comp because like what we hear is, well, I'm not a math person. I can't touch this. I'm going to go let that little team of quiet, mousy, little experts who are really good at Excel go do their thing and tell me when I've got a problem. So yeah, I do really hope that changes because if you really want to be seen as a strategic business partner, you got to know how to manage your payroll and your budget and to preempt some of those challenges that your business leader are going to see. Hey, everybody. I'm Lori Rudiman. Welcome to Punk Rock HR. Today's guest is David Buckmaster. He's the author of a new book, Fair Pay, How to Get a Raise, Close the Wage Gap, and Build Stronger Businesses. David has been part of the punk rock HR ecosystem for many years. He's a longtime reader, someone that I have followed on social media, and I'm so excited for his new book because it's an expert take on the crisis of income inequality. He addresses problems with our current compensation model, and he really goes deep and demystifies pay practices. But what I love is that David is offering solutions on really providing employees with transparency. He talks about negotiation and he discusses how we can close the gender and racial pay gap once and for all. David Buckmaster is a compensation nerd, but he's also a comedian and a prolific writer and just someone you should know. So if you want to hear two HR nerds talk about compensation, but really talk about where the rubber meets the road, sit back and enjoy this conversation with David Buckmaster. Hey, David, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Lori. Thanks for having me. Oh, Dude, my pleasure. I'm a fan. Like, this is exciting for me in a really nerdy way. So before we geek out a little bit, though, why don't you tell everybody who you are and what you're all about? My name is David Buckmaster. My day job is working on corporate compensation teams. So I have been at companies that you've heard of, like Nike, Starbucks, Yum! Brands. So that's KFC, Pizza, and Taco Bell. But what I'm here to talk about today is not a spokesperson from any of those companies, but with my new book. It's called Fair Pay, How to Get a Raise, Close the Wage Gap, and Build Stronger Businesses comes out June 29th from Harper Business, and I'm really excited about it. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, this is your first book, right? It is my first book, and the process was really unexpected each step of the way. I was at a pretty low place in my career before, and I just felt like I needed to get back to some sense of myself and uh, started writing again, writing something I've always done, and decided to submit an essay I did for a prize called the Brackenbauer Prize. It was put on by Financial Times and McKinsey and Company a few years ago, and I was shortlisted for that globally. And one thing led to another. And here I am with a book. Well, you know, you're not just a writer about the world of business, the world of finance, the world of compensation. You're also a bit of a comedy writer, correct? I have in the past. You know, I would say mostly it's just bad dad jokes with the family, I suppose. But yeah, I've written for McSweeney's and some other things in the past. So that's probably more aspirational. I would love to do that, but uh, I probably need to be a lot funnier to pull that off. Well, what I love about that is you're going to bring your total self, all of your different aspects to a book about compensation, fair pay, the wage gap. So tell us a little bit about the book. So the book is broken into two sections. You know, the first is pay as it is. And that's where I describe what's the black box at 
corporate compensation teams, how do we function? We are very secretive for the most part. And what does it actually mean to figure out the number that sits in your paycheck? What's all the stuff that goes into it? What's the stuff we're not telling you? How does the industry work together to come up with some of these benchmarks? Like, what does that mean? And how can you ask better questions? The back half of the book is pay as it could be. And that talks about just the stuff that's broken and the questions that we're being asked in the corporate world and how the way we think about this now is not really suited to meet the challenges that we are meant to solve in the future. And so that's everything from the gender wage gap and racial wage gaps as well to just straight up low absolute wages for service workers and retail and distribution centers and all of that. And so where's all of this going? And a bit of a warning, I guess, to say if we don't figure this out, things are just going to get really, really bad. So the model that I've broken it up on is just what I call the fair pay mix. We can get into this in a little bit, but it's just to talk about what's a better way of trying to integrate the data, the stories you're trying to tell with our businesses to solve employee problems versus trying to hit a benchmark that may not actually be people relevant whatsoever. Well, before we get into all of that, I think we need to define some terms because the world of compensation uses a lot of phrases, a lot of words that mean different things to different people. So let's start with how you define the fair and fair pay. Fair is a very loaded word politically, and I use it on purpose. I think we need to redeem this word because this is the basics of what our employees are asking from us. You know, when we say fair, of course, that's going to mean different things to different people based on their economic conditions, their aspirations. And what I've tried to do is to try and stay away from saying fair means X amount of dollars, whether it's $15 an hour minimum wage or it's some imaginary cap for executives. But just to say, we are going to come across these questions forever. And we need to develop a mindset around this that we're all kind of agreeing that fair pay, it means a couple of things. You know, one is it's a shared perception between all parties that the process has been honest and, and evaluated in a way that makes sense in the same ways across the entire organization. And the second thing is, honestly, I just like the World Economics Forum around this. When they say fair pay, it's non-negotiable understanding. Your pay has to be at least enough for the essentials. It's not enough to just call your workers essentials. Like they have essential needs you've got to take care of, including some discretionary income as well. And that's where things start to get really complex. So I've tried to say there's the absolute value of fair pay, and then there's relative values. If you're low on the wage scale, the absolute number matters like a lot because you can't pay your bills. When you get a little bit, a few more clicks up there, the relative value start to matter more, but there's shared themes around both of these things. Well, it's really interesting because we all start aspirationally with fair pay, but I don't think people understand exactly what makes up their paycheck. So at a very broad level, can you talk about what pay really is? So it's going to vary a lot by country. So US, Canada, Mexico, fairly similar to each other, right? So the bulk of your pay is just your wages, right? So the salary that you earn, and then most companies typically will have some sense of bonus plan on top of it, which is a cash bonus that maybe pays out twice a year, mostly once a year. And then if you're lucky, and if you're a public company, you've got stock on top of that, or some equivalent to it. Beyond that, like the traditional model is what you would call total rewards. It includes things like paid time off and benefits and recognition and work-life balance and all of that fun stuff. So th there is kind of like a pie here. What I'll say is like typically the amount of pay that we'd call at risk, and we could debate whether it's actually at risk or not, for executives tends to be more skewed away from base pay and more into things like incentives once you go a little bit further up the chain. So there are a lot of people who have come into my coaching practice and they're very angry about their pay. And one of the things that they do is they imagine that their boss is making a ton of money or their CEO is making a ton of money, and it may not be imagination there. And they also tend to talk about the perks. So can you talk a little bit about executive perks and how that factors in with compensation? 
Yeah, executive perks are a whole world of interesting things. There's a whole ecosystem of mobility companies that specialize in shipping wine collections and people's horses. Like that's a real thing. There's golf club memberships and private jets and all of that kind of stuff. So, but but I want to back up. That's part of your total compensation package, though, if you're an executive, correct? Absolutely, yeah. But those are the things that when you get into negotiations with executives, and I've done many, many, many executive offers and this kind of thing. Those are all kind of afterthoughts. At that point, the recruiter, the rest of the executive team is pretty well smitten with that particular leader, it's a pretty risk-free question to say, hey, and oh, by the way, can you pay for my golf club membership or my kid's school fees or whatever it is in certain countries? That stuff is kind of rubber stamped. And I would say that's not true of every company, but some companies are maybe a little bit more aggressive in that area than others. Yeah, I think it's just such an interesting thing when I hear it because so often it surprises, like maybe the human resources leader in my coaching practice comes in and she's burnt out and she's like, and by the way, guess what this guy's getting, right? And so I think that's why I'm asking this under the auspices of fair pay, because I think you're right when we don't talk about this and when it's discovered, it feels unfair. It just feels random. And you wonder, why not me? Why isn't someone shipping my wine collection when I reload? That's right. And, you know, one of the fair pay mix P's, you know, I talk about is, uh, you know, this priority, permission, process, and power. We talk about all of these things. And so just to transition for like, why does executive pay inclusive of these perks? Why does it work like this? I think there's this broader question on how do we get all of this tamed and under control. My chapter on this is a bit different on purpose. And it may sound a little bit grim, but honestly, like I'm not sure you do get it under control. What I've tried to do is say, what are the lessons we can learn from this ecosystem that then apply to everybody else, right? So when we talk about priority, if you're an executive, like you've got the comp committee, right? The comp committee, like that's all they do is to prioritize, you know, executives, their performance and their pay. So of course, it's going to stay on the agenda. It legally has to for big companies. Permission is a big one. I think maybe when you're coaching, people might not know, can get away with asking this or not. Executives don't care. Of course, they're going to ask for this, right? Because one of the things that we know is an accelerant for fair pay, for wage growth is just transparency. One of the things I think we can learn from the executive pay ecosystem is this stuff is fully transparent. Like if you're in the top five in your organization and you have the stomach to read like a really boring legalese document, this stuff is public. You can see what they're getting and what they're not getting, right? And then, you know, the last bit of this is power. I devote two to three chapters just on power and about how that is just functionally different for the further up you go in the organization, pay very often is just a function of your proximity to power. So when we say executive pay is X, there are reasons why it keeps growing. And at the lower parts of the organization, where even though it might be 80% of your payroll, if you're a restaurant or retailer, it might be half of that of the total payroll expense or less. So it's like you can make a lot of difference for not a lot of relative money, but because they don't have the power to force that conversation or to keep it on the agenda, these things start to erode over time. And you know, I think HR leaders have to recognize that. Well, and you're asking, HR leaders who don't have much power themselves from time to time to recognize this and to have a voice and to have an opinion and to get involved. And I think that can be a bit of a risky proposition. I do want to talk about something else that's kind of related to this, which is the wage gap. Many of us walk around saying, well, women earn like 70, we never get the number right. We earn 72 cents on the dollar and 76 cents on the dollar is 84 cents. So tell us what is the wage gap and what do we get right and what do we get wrong about it? You've hit it exactly right. What is the number, right? And, and so this hits on the exact question. You know, Payscale's got this stat that people in my industry like to bandy about, you know, it's 46% of men and 38% of people overall think the gender wage gap is just this made up political thing. And I think internally, when you actually look at this data, like this is the closest my industry will get to being climate scientists. Like you hear people like take all these like complex data and stories and 
distill it into one thing. Oh, this is or isn't real. It's like, no, 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 we've run the numbers. It's real. Like 38% of you, you need to like just reassess a little bit, right? But to your point is our industry has not done a great job explaining the definitions behind these things. So you get all this kind of wonky, well, is it 71 cents? Is it 84 cents? And usually what happens is you're conflating two different definitions. So one of them is the raw pay gap versus the adjusted pay gap. You may hear this called just the pay gap versus pay equity. So these are kind of the normal lenses of looking at this stuff. So the raw pay gap is just straight up arithmetic. So in the UK, for example, you have to report on the raw pay gap. And that's just, let me take the average pay for women and some divided by average pay for men. If it's 80,000 versus 100,000, boom, 80 cents on the dollar or 80 pence on the pound, I guess. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I've got go to check that out, right? Yeah, that's all right. We get it. But pay equity is different. And this is what most companies will report on. And I'll get into that in a second. But like pay equity starts to sanitize that data first to say, well, let's look at things like job level and experience and exact location in the company or function or whatever, you can slice that data a number of different ways before you run the analysis. Companies have gotten really good at this pay equity side of it, but it's not going to be enough to take us where we need to go. And the reason the companies will focus on the pay equity side is because that gives them a direct set of checks they need to write to go fix the problem for the year. The raw pay gap, just the straight up arithmetic of it, speaks to problems that are so far upstream of the compensation team that like, honestly, we don't know what to do. It speaks to talent selection, to promotions, to structural inequalities, right? You know, there's this great study that when the minimum wage first came out like 1938, it did not include things like restaurant workers, you know, agriculture, you know, things were predominantly staffed by underrepresented groups. In 1967, when that law was changed to include everybody, all sectors of the economy, the studies that came on afterwards showed that 20% of the racial wealth gap disappeared because of that one change to the law. So there's some structural stuff that if I'm in my chair, I'm like, what do we value in society? And, and do we think our salary surveys are really the end all be all of what the market is or are those kind of biased too? So that's why we started to have confusing messages when we're not really clear about what definition we're trying to solve. Hey, everybody, Lori here to talk about my experiences as a LinkedIn learning instructor. Last summer, I had this cool opportunity from LinkedIn learning to record two courses. They gave me an opportunity to teach anything I wanted to teach. And I said, okay, I have two ideas. The first is on self-leadership, which is the art and science of individual accountability. And the second course I want to teach is on proactively managing conflict as an employee. When you feel like you have no power and you're constantly fighting with a boss, what do you do? Well, I've taught a course on that. So because I went through this awesome and amazing LinkedIn experience, they gave me a free code that I can give to you. If you want to try LinkedIn Learning out for 30 days free, no obligation to see my courses on proactively managing conflict or self-leadership or anybody else's courses, head on over to bit.ly forward slash LinkedIn PRHR. That's bit.ly forward slash LinkedIn PRHR, all one word, all lowercase, to get 30 days of LinkedIn Learning on me, no strings attached, so you can bet on yourself and win. The punk rock cynical woman in me is just like, hey, pay everybody more. 
know, like just raise the pay and you solve for some of this or, you know, like put in a real clear and easy system. But what I hear from you is that even the clearest and easiest system may not be the right solution because of the pay equity issue and the way that we look at jobs, we look at roles, and then you've got all the systemic stuff as well. So paying everybody more is not the answer, I guess. There's a software company called Buffer that's like everybody in my seat's like go to. They will post actual pay levels at the person level, make it fully transparent, right? Their pay programs are also prescriptive. It's all formulaic based. So theoretically, there should be absolutely no pay equity gap whatsoever. I don't know this to be true, but you can still have a pay gap in that scenario when you've set the rules to be completely fixed, no discretion, just depending on who's sitting in what seats. So if the entire executive team are men, women are in the lower seats, like you still have a pay gap despite pulling all of the bias potential away from your pay system. So like that's something that the comp team has no levers to try and fix. That's how, who are we getting into the organization and then how are we promoting them? So that I think HR needs to take a much more integrated approach to solving this issue. Well, it's really interesting that you talk about the role of the comp team right there because I had never really thought that the comp team had a place to solve some of these problems in organizations where I've worked. The comp team really works at the beck and call of the executive leadership team, right? Or at some of the line leaders, but they're not really an organization that gets in and provides solutions or new ideas. Is that changing? I hope so, because I think that's super unfortunate. You know, I think there's been how many articles and books and conferences about how do we get HR seat at the table? It's like, you remember that you control the largest line item on your team's budget, which is your payroll. But I think oftentimes HR leaders, and tell me if this is true in your experience, are kind of afraid to go into comp because like what we hear is, well, I'm not a math person. I can't touch this. I'm going to go let that little team of quiet, mousy, little experts who are really good at Excel go do their thing and tell me when I've got a problem. So yeah, I do really hope that changes because if you really want to be seen as a strategic business partner, you got to know how to manage your payroll and your budget and to preempt some of those challenges that your business leader are going to see. But it's not just about knowing Excel and knowing how to you know, manage payroll and knowing the numbers. It's really about understanding the way power works to your point or, or understanding you know, compensation trends globally. So it's about having a bit of a deeper understanding that's part math and part strategy and part war room, if um, what I'm hearing is correct. I'm really interested in asking about this idea of negotiation because I want to know what people get wrong. But first, I want to talk about this thing that we say in public, which is women don't know how to negotiate. Because I had a guest on my show not too long ago who said, you know, if you're a woman and you've ever walked down a dark alley and you've kind of crossed the way to get away from someone and you've done it safely and you haven't been hurt, you know how to negotiate. If you've ever gotten a picky toddler to eat food, you know how to negotiate. She believes women know how to negotiate, but they also know how to read a room and know when they're going to lose and know early. And so they just make some decisions. They make some trade-offs. So I wanted to just get your global thoughts on that. Do women know how to negotiate or not? Of course. you know, And I think, you know, obviously I can't speak to the experiences of being a, a woman in corporate life, right? But this is one of those things where I think this is a total cop out by companies. The data that I've seen on this is that women actually tend to, they do ask as much as men, they just don't get it approved. So like kind of asking this negotiation thing isn't like a viable strategy for your career. It's a tool you need to have in your toolbox, but the onus has to be on the company to treat people fairly and well, even in an environment that's pretty enclosed and insular on the black box side. But I will say like, of course, women can negotiate really well. Maybe there's just some bad male leaders out there who just maybe get their feelings hurt sometimes when somebody wants to be treated fairly. 
I think it's pretty interesting because while we say women don't know how to negotiate, I would assume that most people don't know how to negotiate, like truly. And having been in human resources, people ask for the wrong things at the wrong time, or they don't ask, or they just wait for you to offer. I mean, there's like a million dumb things that they do. So can you talk about what goes wrong on the company side when people try to negotiate? So when people are trying to negotiate pay, like, let me just start by saying the best companies are, especially like when you're taking a new job, they're not out to lowball you. They're not out to stick it to you. Companies that have really highly functioning talent acquisition organizations, highly functioning comp companies, they know that if they mess up your pay on the way in, that's going to create 10 other problems for that person's employment experience down the road. So they want to get it right the first time. I think you even mentioned this in your book, right? When you say companies are moving away from negotiating at all. Yeah, because it's like, what are we saying? If we're willing to hold back 5% until you ask for it, what does that mean for your entire experience? Right. What is that story? It's like, oh, we love you. You're going to do so great here. You have a big career. And by the way, we're going to lie to you right at the start. That is not where you want to be. But the burden, regardless of where the company is, it, it has to be on the company. You just have to know that you hold 100% of the cards in this scenario. You have all the data, you know the policies, you've assessed their level and their pay if you can, unless it's like legally prohibitive, and as it is in a lot of states now for very good reasons, by the way. But when companies move away from negotiating at all, like it just forces them to get a lot better. It forces them to assess talent versus doing kind of a scattershot approach to say, let me send out 6,000 LinkedIn invites, see if I get one. Everything in, in our process has to get better, which means the employment experience gets better. But that transparency part of it has to be in play too. Like we don't want an environment of zero negotiation with zero transparency. But I think there's a couple of things that people get wrong for understandable reasons when they don't have the right information and when they're going into a pay negotiation. The first one is like just bringing bad data into the argument. Again, this is not their fault because the good stuff, the real data is not publicly available. So like the stuff that you found online by searching your job title and salary, your comp team is not using that data. It does not meet our standards. But you know, the bad data is one that's going to be hard for you to solve in the absence of a world of pay transparency. Wait, can you go out to your community though? This is something I talk about all the time. Like if you've got a tight group of girlfriends or a tight group of colleagues and you're not afraid to do this, I believe you can learn a lot about compensation and what people are earning, right? Oh, sure. People should be talking about their comp. And by the way, it's not illegal to talk about your compensation, by the way. I think this is one of those zombie myths that doesn't go away that you're not, that you're not allowed to talk about what you get paid. This is perfectly legal. So don't let your company tell you otherwise. But when you do that, you need to make sure that you are thinking about it like your compensation team is doing. So interpreting what your job level is in the same way. So I think companies are particularly on titling. If I'm a director at one company, that might be a manager at another company. And so there's this whole leveling assessment you need to do to say, okay, ask your company for their leveling guide. Where is this place? You can find leveling guides all over the internet. There's only like two or three, honestly, that companies use because there's been so much consolidation in the survey space. But make sure you're really clear about what your job is because you might feel really great about negotiating on your title, uh, especially in big companies. They don't care. There's a system title for you. Like you can call yourself like the Lord of Accounting in Winterfell if you want to, and that's fine, but you're probably accounting manager too or something. There's an actual level setting process that goes in there. Go find a leveling guide, assess yourself against it. The other thing I think is negotiate on upfront cash in your range placement. The bigger the company that you work with, just know that like their systems are not set up to do custom things on benefits and days off and like little special perks that you mentioned, right? Those things are all going to be like side agreements and a word document somewhere that somebody forgot about. Smaller companies, you can get away with that. Bigger companies, get the cash. Ask where your new offer is going to put you in their pay range. If you're highly experienced in that job level, you should expect to be paid in the high part of the pay range. If you're kind of new as kind of a lateral promotion in the middle or maybe the lower part might be okay. But 
ask where that new offer is putting you in the pay range, and then try and get as much cash as you want. The general rule for comp teams is we will essentially typically pay for your next 12 months of walk away. So if you're moving from one company to the next, get your lost bonus, cash bonus paid out, get that stock vesting paid out. And then, you know, anything above that is gravy because whatever happens on the back end, the new company would expect that their programs would fill that gap. So go for the cold, hard cash up front and don't negotiate on the little things that we don't really care about too much. It's so funny that you say that because I remember taking my job at Pfizer and I had a vacation planned and I'm like, I want to make sure, you know, in writing that I can get these weeks off. And my boss was like, I don't give a shit. You know, like, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. We're a big company here. We're solving big problems. You take your vacation whenever you want. I'm not going to tell you no. I'm like, all right, good enough for me. Let's move on. I hate to tell you this, Laura, but Pfizer's just fine with or without you. You know, Pfizer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? They have demonstrated that over the years. Absolutely. That's exactly right. <laughs> well, I would love to end this conversation talking a little bit about the future of pay. I think that's really important. And you've got an opinion on what needs to change within the world of compensation, within the world of human resources, and just in general about the world of business. So talk to me a little bit about the future of where this is all going and what we can do to make sure it's not so grim. I think there are two paths happening right now. I think a lot of whether you're vendors or some companies are figuring out everything's getting super optimized to the individual. So let's figure out the exact right amount of pay they need right now. And we can do that through some combination of AI, machine learning, whatever new buzzword we've got for the week, right? I think pay is going the opposite direction. Honestly, I think there's going to be focus on wage gaps, pay transparency, just like the perception of fairness around the whole process. If we're doing it well, pay will actually get pretty boring. I don't think there's going to be that much differentiation. So again, use the extreme case around a buffer where like it's super boring, right? You know everything going in. So I think pay is going to optimize for those things, right? Employment experience, but most companies don't compete on pay and I don't think they're going to in the future. They're going to want to say pay needs to be credible. It needs to be enough, but we're going to try and solve for things like career development and balance and you know overall experience and your team, all of that kind of, you could call it more strategic. Hey, there's probably the most expensive and the least effective way to buy affection. That said, if you get it wrong, it's a huge problem. Pay has to be right and credible, but I don't think it's going to be like the leading indicator for big companies in the future. So I just want to hit that again. Pay is the most expensive and least effective way to buy affection. Is that true? I think that's true. Once it reaches a credible amount. So like, if you think about like the Maslow's hierarchy, you hit your essential needs first, you know, kind of the basics. And then once you kind of ratchet up in the organization, you start going to things like the top of the pyramids of self-actualization stuff, right? And so when you get to the middle of the organization, or whatever, you're not likely to jump to another company for a 10% pay increase if you know it's going to be a disastrous experience. That said, this goes into that earlier conversation about absolute and relative values. So that's the relative value of the conversation. The absolute value sure as that matters when you're low on the pay scale and you can't pay your bills, right? So like we need to make sure that we hold both those things in balance so we're not just solving for people who work cushy jobs and offices and have been working from home for the last year and largely been living really nice, relaxing lives with their families. Unless you have young kids at home and then it's a total cluster, <laughs> right? right? But uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Versus, you know, the experience of people who have no job security, no benefits, can't pay their bills. We need to be able to solve for both those things at the same time. Well, I'm glad we've got your wonderful, big new book that considers both and offers some big ideas. Why don't you close us out by telling us a couple of the key points you want us to remember about the book and where we can find it? So key points to remember about the book. I do not believe that fixing pay is a hopeless endeavor. I think we're on the path to doing it. I think the best companies of the future will start taking this seriously for the HR industry that's on the call. Step into this space. It is not just a nice tool for your toolkit. It's the core of what you're doing. And you have to really evaluate your programs to say, are we solving the problems that are not just market relevant, but are they people? 
people relevant. So it starts with getting the basics right. You know, let's focus on the ABCs before we work on the XYZs. So we have to get your pay and benefits right. And I would just say to help people understand, like it all comes back to that absolute versus relative value. There is no one problem we're trying to solve on pay. It's about we need top level business leaders to take this seriously. To say we have whole segments of our workforce so you cannot put the basic pieces of life together that will have a serious impact on your customers down the road. And then there's relative environments. You know, there is a stat that says, you know, only one in five people believe that their uh, the pay system that their company runs is fair. You would never tolerate that from your customers to say four to five people think that you are kind of screwing them on the customer basis. You would never tolerate that. So why do we tolerate that on pay? And we need to get much more serious. This world is going to get a lot more transparent. And if you are not preparing for this now, HR leaders, you are way behind the curve. My goodness, really good stuff. Well, David, I'm so glad you're here today. And tell us where everybody can get your book. So you can get the book on June 29th. It's available for pre-order wherever you'd like to buy your books. You know, all the standards are there. You know, Amazon, Target, Barnes & Noble, my favorite, Powell's, because I'm in Portland, which is the ultimate bookstore. But wherever you'd like to buy your books. Amazing. Well, good stuff. And I'm really glad you're here. And thanks again for coming on the show. It's been a long time since we've been connected with one another and we've never had a chance to see one another physically. So this was a real treat for me. Me too. Thank you so much, Lori. Hey, everybody. I hope you enjoyed the show today. For more information, including show notes and links, you can head on over to punkrockhr.com. And if you like what you heard today, head on over to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a five-star review. Now, that's all for today, and I hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you next time on Punk Rock HR.